Hello, listeners. Beyond the Mask, in conjunction with NBC RNA, is pleased to announce that listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how to submit them, go to our website. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, hello, Sharon. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm good. I'm good. How are things down where you're at today? Because you're not in the studio. No, I am not in the studio. I'm down at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I was supposed to have been in New Haven this week because we've got class this week. But of course, because of the pandemic, we could not go. So we decided to do beach work instead of homework. So Kimberly and I and the judge... Uh, she's also down here with us. Yes. And yeah. we brought all of our food and all of our wine and we run out of wine. So we're probably going <laughs> to have to go, go get to some the more. store. <laughs> we're going to have to go to the uh, store. So they are in their rooms doing homework and I'm here with you. Well, I'm glad you're here with me. Well, I'm glad because we have got a great guest with us today that we've been waiting some time we've been talking uh, about be this one to, for a while a long time yeah a long time so yeah. i'm finally glad we were able to get her to join us well just remind me i don't want to say it on air but there is a a song about myrtle beach that i want to turn you on to once uh once okay. we get this off so we'll, we'll talk about that off air though so, okay yeah Sounds like a plan. <laughs> so we do have a special guest with us today jean stawicki hi jean hi how are you today I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Now, are you up in Massachusetts? I'm in Massachusetts, Chowton, Massachusetts, to be exact. All right. How's the weather up there today? It's cold. <laughs> huh, November in Massachusetts. I just can't imagine, right? Yeah, it's great. It's just great. <laughs> Everything's dead. Uh, well, you know, Sharon and I have been talking about having you on for quite a while. And, Jean, you have such an interesting story. You, you're you a CRNA, first and foremost. Once and, a CRNA, yeah. Well, uh, you're once still a, CRNA, a CRNA, you're always a CRNA, right? You're just a CRNA that doesn't give anesthesia anymore. That's right. Two-time Guinness Book record holder. Why don't you fill our audience in a little bit more about your background? Because it's you have a plethora of things that you've accomplished. Well, I... 
tried to summit Everest twice, succeeded on my third attempt, but I got the two Guinness World Records, one for mountain climbing, I became the oldest woman in the world <laughs> to summit the highest mountains on all seven continents, which I tried with Guinness to just change the oldest part. <laughs> I couldn't seem to find that. <laughs> and I became the, I got the record for the most aggregate time for all seven marathons. In other words, every marathon that I ran was compared with a 24-year-old. That's an interesting story. When I saw her age 24, I thought I'd never beaten her times. Oh, my and gosh. I said, um, stop looking at it because I think you did. And I went wow. back. A month later, I had this feeling I had to go back and check the times. And sure enough, I'd beaten her by two hours. You beat a 24-year-old. Wow. Who held the world record for running them in the shortest aggregate time for each marathon. I was shocked. Wow. wow. Now, how old were you at that time, if That's I may ask? 56th year. 57th was 2007 when I summited Everest. So you were 56 and beat a 24-year-old. That's when I ran marathons all over the world. And I became the first woman in the world, which is another funny story, to both run marathons and climb the highest peaks on all seven continents. And Ripley's, believe it or not, <laughs> thought it was such an amazing accomplishment that one of the, I remember one of the um, urologists came up to me and said, Jeannie, you're in the Guinness Book of World Record. You're in the Ripley's Believe It or Not. And I thought, oh, great. Believe it or not, a 57-year-old woman <laughs> ran marathons all over the world and summited the highest peaks and became the first woman to do so. Oh, my goodness. Now, they're not going to put a wax statue of you. <laughs> I don't up. think so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they've got Ripley's, believe it or not, down here at Myrtle Beach. So do I need to go in and see no, if no. there? Because <laughs> I heard Ripley's, believe it or not, I thought, oh, God, I can just, because it's all about these ex weird things. Well, I well, guess. Well, they might they pay royalties, they, though, for that. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Well, Jean, you know, it's interesting to hear about your accomplishments, but also you have a tremendous story about how you began in life and how you reached all of these peaks, not to throw a pun off on that. So tell us about your childhood growing up. You grew up in a big mansion or something, right? <laughs> no, I grew up in a very small house with no heating. We had a stove that heat the house. My mom and dad got married at a very young age. And it was a time when, you know, my mom was a strict Catholic. She had five young children. We were each like maybe a couple years different in age. My dad, he worked at a textile factory. He was a veteran that came back from the war. He left this big strapping man, you know, very handsome, very strong. He came back a broken man. Mm-hmm. He had PTSD. He was a very sensitive soul, and he couldn't, you know, they didn't recognize PTSD then. And one night, when I was six years old, he attempted suicide, and we sold their home. My mom had to apply for aid because the veterans didn't recognize PTSD, so she had no money. She had to divorce him in order to get the aid for dependent children, and we moved out of that house with our big, beautiful backyard to an apartment complex, a big giant apartment complex with nothing but pavement for our big beautiful backyard. Mm -hmm. So that didn't, it didn't start out well. 
-hmm. And my mom, who was now by herself, she had her family that helped us through this immensely. But my mom was, she had so many tragic things happen to her. I mean, with her whole marriage disrupted, with him coming home like that and having to divorce him. And he was in a psychiatric hospital. They did insulin shock. When he finally did come to see us, he was a broken man. He kept saying the same words over and over again. His hands trembled. He'd been through a lot at that time in the psychiatric hospital. And he went to live with his mom and dad. And my mom was going through some tough times. She had a baby and she had four young children, (laughs) very young. And so she got nervous because she had to be inside with the baby. So what she did was she instilled fear and anxiety with us with anything new we attempted because she wanted to keep us from hurting ourselves out in the backyard or hurting ourselves when we were at the apartment complex. She always, you know, discouraged things like that. Mm -hmm. Funny story, when I started taking up running, she was nervous as heck because she thought that is wrong. That is so wrong. You're going to get killed on the road. So I grew up with a lot of fear and anxiety. I grew up bombing chains that, you know, insecure, inferior, going to school with hand-me-downs. I tried to blend in, you know, with the walls. I didn't want people to notice me. I was very quiet. But the one thing I did do in school was I was determined to make something better for myself. And I applied myself and I graduated with on the honor society when I finally did graduate. Wow. So it wasn't, it was a childhood that was filled with a lot of stress, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and didn't quite prepare me for life's challenges. Yeah. And Jean, you had some unconscious performance limits, right? Because of your childhood as well. And how do you manage that fear when you're trying to attempt anything, you know, training in both schools and so forth? I mean, how did you overcome that? Smoking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I hadn't been smoking. I mean, the, the anxiety was so great. The idea, I mean, picture this, you know, here's this country bumpkin, really, coming into a nursing dorm. All these girls are talking excitedly about their summer vacations, how they got jobs at the Cape, how they did this, how they did that. I was coming into a world I didn't even know. So that was anxiety producing to start with, because here I was wearing my my clothing down low below my knees and they had it hiked way up. You know, they had all these fancy clothes and everything else. And I came in with my hand-me-downs And right off the bat, I started to get nervous and I thought, oh, and then taking care of patients, it was just like I was constantly afraid I was going to make a mistake. I had a lot of empathy for patients. Hmm. I think that got in the way sometimes because if someone died on my watch, I really couldn't handle it. I really had a hard time. And anesthesia school was a whole different scene. I mean, that was like go on, go in there. <laughs> oh my God. Well, anesthesia school is stressful enough yeah. for anyone who has a strong personality, but Don't I imagine. That. I was an on-the-job trained nurse anesthetist. Right. Before I became a certified anesthetist. Uh-huh. That's even worse. Yeah, and well, I can imagine. Tell us a little bit about that. Because well, you go in and, you know, I hadn't even started an IV as a nurse. I mean, they didn't let you at that time. So now I had to learn all these new skills. They didn't allow us to intubate, which was probably a blessing in my case. (laughs) 
But we would get, you know, the anesthesiologist would come in and sit with us or another anesthetist who'd been through the ropes before us and watch us how we conducted ourselves and talk to us about everything. And at the time it was very anxiety producing because I thought, God, this patient's life is in my hands and you know, I'm not ready. It took a while before I felt confident enough to say, okay, I'm ready. But they had to give me all their phone numbers when I was first on call because we were even doing OB. Mm -hmm. We were giving nitrous oxide for deliveries and things like that. So that was very frightening for me. Now, I threw up I the first night I was on call. <laughs> <laughs> and I called one of the anesthetists and I said, just making sure that you know that I'm, I might call you on something. It was scary. All right. So I've heard you speak before and you said that you alluded to the fact that you smoked and you said if they would have allowed you to have smoked in the OR, you would have done that. It was cyclopropane at the time that we were using. I thought smoking in the OR wouldn't be a good idea, <laughs> but I would have. Yes, I would have. So let's fast forward. You've been smoking two packs a day for years and then you decide, okay, I think I'm going to run a marathon. How did, <laughs> you got to give us uh, a little bit of something here. How did you get from, let's stop smoking two packs a day to I'm going to start running marathons. And how did you do on your first time out? Well, here's the thing. I had a lot of stress prior to that. My newly married, you know, we just had gotten married. I was very young. And in a year, he had an accident at work that led to multiple surgeries in the hospital, led to a spinal fusion, more surgeries after that, led to him almost dying from a pulmonary embolus. When they went in to decompress, they were going to have a surgery to decompress his spine. They did another myelogram, ended up with him being diagnosed with adhesive arachnoiditis, and he was disabled for life. And that was the end of that dream. So I knew, I remember sitting on the floor and thinking, oh my God, my life is over. I'm going to be working three jobs for the rest of my life. I felt so bad for him. There was nothing I could do to help him. He was in a lot of pain. And unfortunately, they didn't diagnose him with the arachnoiditis until the day that he went into MGH and through the blood pulmonary embolus. Mm -hmm. And they sent him home. I was in anesthesia school at the time, and I had to take time off. And they, they warned me. They said, you won't graduate with the rest of the class. So I had a lot of pressure. And that caused me to start thinking about my life and how I had no interests. I had no hobbies. I had nothing but work and coming home and taking care of the household and, and trying to lift his spirits. And I, one day, he after that diagnosis of arachnoiditis, and this is what started me running, I came down the next morning and I expected him to really be despondent because they had just told him that his life was essentially, you know, over. <laughs> he was going to have to live with this disability for the rest of his life because the pain was really bad. And I saw him reading a book and I saw a smile on his face and I thought, what is going on? We found out about a mind-body clinic and that was in Brookline. And we decided, you know, when I found out, when I looked at the book, I found out the clinic was right in Boston. And I thought that's it, we're going. Because it talked about helping people to deal with things that would have caused them to end their lives or not be able to live a complete life. And that was where I first started learning about the power of our thoughts. 
mm-hmm. and how you can actually make a difference in your consciousness by changing your thoughts. That time was when I came home and I said, I'm going to give up smoking. That's the first thing I got to do. And I wanted a hobby. I wanted something for me, something that I felt good about me for because I couldn't keep working and just being the wife. And so what happened is it took me, I hate to say how many tries <laughs> before I finally was able to kick that habit. And mm-hmm. I got into, you know, my running shots and everything else. And I headed out the door and I just ran down the driveway and collapsed in a heap of coughing. I couldn't even breathe. Mm-hmm. And I hauled myself back up to the door, but I was decided I was not going to quit. So eventually, I started off walking, and I couldn't even walk far. I was surprised by how much damage I had done from all that smoking. And gradually, I was able to walk and run and eventually got into running. And when I ran long distances, the best part, the thing that kept me hooked was the silence. The thoughts that tortured me on a daily basis were gone. Hmm. I was, you know, so exhilarated. I was looking at everything smelling, the different seasons, spring with all those smells, the fall when the leaves turn all different colors. I was paying attention to everything along. I was just exhilarated with those runs. It made a huge difference in the way that I began to think. And when I heard about the 100th running of the Boston Marathon, something in me clicked. (laughs) And it's like, I'm going to do that. Because they weren't going to accept, they didn't, you just had to write in and they were going to see You didn't have to have a qualifying time, let me put it that way. But then I heard about the New York City Marathon, and I decided I was going to start there. And I started my own training on my own, reading books about marathon running and having my successes and failures. But I did manage to get into the New York City Marathon, although everyone told me I wouldn't. Because the minute they opened it up, I was right down at the postal service saying, first class, (laughs) get it in fast. And I was accepted. And to my surprise, I ran the New York City Marathon in the qualifying time of an 18-year-old. Wow. And you were how old at that time? At that time, I was 44. Okay, so you're 44, qualifying at an 18-year-old time. How long did it take you from the time you made the decision, I'm going to start running, to now I'm running the New York City Marathon? How long was that process? It was about five years. Five years. Okay. So you, but you had a lot to go work through, I would suspect, with your had, childhood. Well, with two to three pack a day smoking habits, I had a lot to work through. And plus with my responsibilities, I would be working 11 to 7. I worked full time during the week. I'd work 11 to 7 on Fridays and during the weekend and I'd come home in the morning and that's when I'd do my runs. Mm-hmm. So, Jean, we've unpacked a lot here. And I, I guess one thing I want to kind of go back to are thoughts and you know that they affect our success and failures how did you go from smoking two packs of cigarette a day to learning how your thoughts affect success and failure because that in itself didn't happen overnight i mean you had to you had to continuously do that can you talk about that process for us i can when i mentioned the mind body clinic they talked about our thoughts They talked about, we had meditation, we did yoga. I mean, I remember I would go after work, I'd have my husband get into the station wagon with pillows in the back and we'd both go. And it made a huge difference. The first time I actually quietened my thoughts for the first time, I couldn't believe 
that I had one minute of no thought and how good that felt because I was addicted to excessive thinking. It was constant. It never stopped. Hmm. Sounds like me. <laughs> well, obs obsessive thinking can go either way. It can be good or it can be bad. It wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Based on what I've told you about what was going on at home. So you were having negative thoughts constantly. I can't do this. I don't want to do that. I'm, you know, those type of thoughts. Well, see, the shackles that I made during my childhood followed me to adulthood. So every time I tried to break into something new or attempt anything new, the fear would stop. And, you know, mm. the, the whole feeling about, no, you can't do that. Come on. Are you kidding me? That's too much. But I was determined I couldn't live my life that way. And the Mind Body Clinic helped me tremendously. They started giving me books. And a lot of the books led to something that really, I believe, led to more books and more books until I got to a point where I realized a sense of spirituality that I had never had. As a child, I always blamed God. I thought, how can you let this happen to my family? I pray every night and he doesn't do anything. Mm. And it only was after going through all of these books. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of Joseph Murphy or Dr. Roberts, any of the ones that write all these kinds of books, but they had a huge impact on me because what it said is that God doesn't want to intervene in your life. You can use God to get ahead, but don't expect him to do your thinking for you or to have opportunities pop up. The only way that happens is this belief that you can do it. Everyone's entitled to their own thoughts on what they want to do with their lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So now you are running the marathons. How did you get to the thought that you wanted to run seven marathons in seven continents? How did you make that leap? Because it's already mind-boggling to think that you go from smoking two packs of cigarettes a day to now I'm running a marathon. And now, as if that's not enough, let me run seven marathons in seven continents. So well, how did you get past that mindset? On the seventh marathon, I fell and I gouged my knee and... They took me over to the side and it was, you know, I was running really fast and I thought, wow, I'm really going to beat my time this time. And a nurse took me over to the side. They bandaged my knee and they said to me, you know, it's pretty bad injury. You're going to have to stop here. And that was at the five mile mark. And I know I saw all these runners passing me by and she was having me sit there and she said, I don't really know if you can continue to run with this. And she left and I jumped back in the race and I finished. <laughs> And I requalified for the next one. But that made me wonder, did I really want to keep running Boston marathons or did I want to do more with my life? So that got me thinking about, well, what else would you like to do? And I started thinking about possibilities. And there was an anesthesiologist that I worked with that climbed mountains. He did rock climbing. He did ice climbing. And he said to me, you should go ice climbing with those legs, meaning that I had runner's legs with strong muscles. You can um, certainly do well at rock climbing. And the thing, the funny thing is I was definitely afraid of heights, but I didn't want him to know that. You know how we are, you know, right. I don't want anyone to know I have any weaknesses. Right, exactly. Try to hide them. Yep. But he invited me to go rock climbing. I initially went for a rock climbing course with one of my friends, and she was the kind that just stepped right up to the plate, 
nothing swayed her. And I'll never forget that <laughs> that first rock climb. If anyone had seen me on that, they would have thought this girl is not cut out to be a rock climber. Never mind <laughs> Summit Everest. I mean, I was paralyzed. I got on this vertical ledge and I was inching my way from across side to side to side. And there was nothing in my perimeter but the treetops. And I remember being deathly afraid. And he's screaming at me, trust your equipment, trust your equipment. And I froze halfway across. And I mean, he must have been thinking, oh, Jesus, now I got to go back and I got to get this girl off the rocks. And he goes, come on, Jean, just look back at Linda. She's waving at you. And there's no way I wanted to even turn my head. But I remember thinking in my mind, this is fear. And if you don't conquer it, you're going to live with it for the rest of your life. And in that moment, I stood up and I finished the climb. And I loved it. Because the funny thing is, I mean, I'm sure you assume this, but when you're climbing, your brain shuts down. <laughs> you can't be thinking while you're climbing. You've got to be measuring every step. And I would come down from those climbs exhausted, but I'd feel exhilarated because I hadn't been thinking all that time. All I'd been thinking of was my next move. So you go, all right. So I'm still trying to get my arms around. How do you go from... Now you, you're taking a rock climbing course, and now we know that you've summited all seven summits. So what's that mindset to go from, okay, now I'm going to climb, and now I'm going to climb seven summits. I'm going to summit seven summits. I mean, there's a lot that's got to go on in the middle of all of that. Well, this anesthesiologist took me rock climbing after I had had my first course, and then we went ice climbing. And it was when I went ice climbing that I met mountain climbers and they looked at me and they said, you should climb a mountain. I mean, you really are wasting, you know, go try it. Just see what it feels like. It's fantastic. And of course, one of the anesthesiologists said to me, well, don't climb just any mountain. Start with the seven summits. And I thought, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't. I, I didn't start with the seven summits. I went to Ecuador and I climbed three volcanoes. And I thought, this is, I mean, I was shaking in my shoes. I was so nervous, but I was determined I wasn't going to let fear stop me. And once I started, once you start climbing like that, every move has to be calculated. So you can't really think. It was only when I had to stop because there was a line ahead of me that I started thinking, ah, look where I am. I'm up so high because I was afraid of heights. That's the funny part. But when I summited that mountain, the first mountain I ever summited, I was just thrilled. I thought, this is fabulous. This is wonderful. I'm getting a new feeling about myself. And so I did decide after that that I was going to take a technical mountain climbing class in the Pacific Northwest. And I'll never forget when they contacted me from Alpine Ascents and said, we're sorry to say you're the only woman in the class. And I thought, oh, great. They're going to take one look at me and I'm going to be just you know, the odd person out, but they were great. They were absolutely great. At first it was, you know, it was funny being with them because they didn't want to talk about the usual stuff men talk about when they're all together. They were on potty manners. And I said, forget about that. We're <laughs> going to be on this mountain for a while. So go ahead. And that, that, I mean, once I took that technical mountaineering course, I was ready for my first mountain. Now, Gene, things went wrong for you. I mean, even during this time period, right? I mean, you were diagnosed with is it vocal cord dysfunction you, you had? That was on my first attempt of Everest. Okay. That was what was going on is that I went and I summited 
the one in uh, Russia. I went to Russia, I summited that mountain. Then I went on and I summited Denali, which was a tough mountain, Aconcagua. And I decided after Aconcagua, you've done this many, why not see if you can do the rest? So I did go on the next year and I summited a few others and I had Everest on my mind. I went to Everest, fully expecting that I was gonna be okay. The funny thing is though, that year before, when I knew I'd be leaving for Everest, I started having symptoms. I started having problems with my breathing, the fear of what I was attempting. I think, you know, the other mountains seemed doable to me. I mean, I, there was fear with them, but I had conquered each one and I had done it and I felt confident even though I did have fear on every one of those mountains, but this was different somehow. This was quoted as the biggest challenge of your life. And I didn't know if I had what it took to do it. And as I was going up to Everest, I started having breathing difficulties. Nothing that lasted, you know, until I got high enough. We had gotten up to about 22,000 feet when it happened. My vocal cords, it's called vocal cord dysfunction. My vocal cords clamped shut and it was like I was drowning. I couldn't take a breath in. And the fear that I had with that was off the charts. <laughs> so did you think that it was self-mediated and not realize that there was actually a clinical reason? I mean, how did you differentiate or could you not differentiate because I of all not, the I could not differentiate. I was just, I know I was frightened out of my mind because every time I took a breath in, I couldn't take the breath in. It sure. was like drowning. That's what it felt like. And here I am on Everest. They're giving me oxygen and I can't get my, I can't take a breath. And I was just crowing away and I was just flailing. I was really frightened. Finally, it broke not enough that I could really take a good deep breath. I'll, I could crow after I, on my way down the mountain, but they felt the best thing for me then was to get me back to base camp. And I was on oxygen at base camp and they decided that I had to wait for a while before I had to leave. And I had to go down the mountain with oxygen to get to a place where a helicopter could safely land. So this was your first Everest attempt. And you had a second attempt. How long after this one did you go back? The next year. Okay. <laughs> and what happened then? I got higher than I had the first time, but it happened again. Not as severe as the first time. The first time I did develop pulmonary edema, hmm. but the second time it happened again. And they looked at me and they said, this is it. You just can't think about this ever again. And I came home and I was just broken. I couldn't go back to work. I tried to go back to work, but I was still wheezing at that point. Like <laughs> I couldn't talk right. And the anesthesiologists to their credit were trying everything under the sun. No one realized I didn't know it was a vocal cord dysfunction. I went to my, you know, the, the anesthesiologist said, you cannot give anesthesia like this. You're gonna have to leave. You're gonna have to take a leave. We can't let you do this. Gene, you have to have this checked out. I had, you name it, they did MRIs of my neck, they did tons of endoscopies, and um, no one seemed to be able to know what to do for me until I went home, and I remember driving to my primary care doctor, and I was in tears, because I couldn't breathe right. I was like 
gasping. And he looked at me and he said, I got to call a thoracic surgeon. And the thoracic surgeon recommended a temporary trach until they could determine what was going on with me. But when I heard that, I got even more afraid because I've seen so many patients that develop scar tissue and a thickening and they have to keep going back and having their larynx, you know, dilated. And I thought, that's not for me. I'm not going to try that. And I got down to my hands and knees and I prayed. And I got this idea. It's, it's an emotional time for me. I got this idea to go on the web and look up the best respiratory hospital in the world, at least in the United States. And it turned out to be the National Jewish. And the National Jewish, when they heard me talk, said, oh, God, no, not a trait. You have to come here. We know how to treat this. It's called vocal cord dysfunction, and we can help you. And I went to the National Jewish, and I had the whole course of treatment. And by the time they had finished, I was able to breathe better. I still had a bit of a wheeze, but I was able to breathe better. And they said, you'll have to follow up with a doctor in Boston. I came home. I mean, it was a tough plane ride, as you can imagine, because I didn't want the airline saying I couldn't fly because something was wrong with me. So I had to make up stories about having laryngitis and everything like that. But I came home and I still was uneasy. I couldn't eat things without choking on them. I had to thicken the water that I used so that I wouldn't choke. It was like having a stroke almost where you couldn't swallow effectively. And it always frightened me because I thought I was going to choke to death. And I went for that follow-up. I decided I was going to go to MGH and to a leading laryngologist. And he treated all the rock stars. And I thought, you know, no matter what it costs, I'm going to do it. I'll take a loan. I'll do whatever I have to do. But I went. And he came in with his entourage. He looked down my, you know, he did another endoscopy, laryngoscopy, I should say, and had me make these sounds. And after he finished, he asked all the residents to leave the room, the whole entourage, because he was famous. And he sat me down. I'll never forget it. He looked me in the face and he said, were you ever sexually molested as a child? And in that moment, a picture came to me of my, my mom and dad, the house that we had. They had a tenant upstairs and she and her son lived there. And the son was in his 20s. And I remember being five years old and he always waited for me to come out to play. But the picture I had when this laryngologist asked me about that was this young boy being out in our yard, lighting matches and letting them fall to the ground. And my mom having to call the police and they took him away. And I knew in that moment that it was, that it was true. Although I couldn't remember any of the details. And um, I decided that, I mean, I sat there for a long time like I was in a, a wind tunnel my head was spinning. I was crying uncontrollably. And I had to drive all the way home from Boston. So I got out into the garage and I sat there for a while shaking. And on the way home, I remember the thoughts that I had. I started getting angry. And I thought, he's not going to ruin my life. I'm not going to let that stop me. The mountains and the marathons had given me more than any therapist had. Periods of peace, that whole feeling of being out there in nature, and I decided I was going to beat this thing no matter what it took. So you go back to Everest again because that's your last summit, right? Well, after the second attempt failed again, that's when I went to the laryngologist. Mm -hmm. And so for the third attempt, I looked up everything, neuroprogramming, tapping, 
anything you could possibly find. And to be totally honest with you, the one thing that I found was this sense that God wasn't separate from me, that there is this feeling of um, spirituality, that the life force, that is this infinite intelligence behind all of life. And the way that we think and the way that we feel influences everything in your life. And I'd found that from childhood. I mean, those thoughts I had all the time without really giving any consideration to what I was thinking had shaped that childhood, had, had shaped that young adulthood. And I didn't want that to happen this time. So I started to change my thinking. And how I did that was they recommended taking periods of time, like say a minute, try not thinking for a minute. I started meditating. Meditating was tough at first, but it got better and better. And as I started to feel this difference in me with my thinking, thoughts that I had programmed in my head for so long, they'd formed grooves in my brain. It's like a habit, you know, how do you mm -hmm. kick a habit? You have to break those connections. Right. And I had to break the thoughts that stopped me. And I worked on it. I really did. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to Kilimanjaro. And I mean, every day I would write down 50 times, I am going back to Everest and I will summit. I am going back. I had to keep programming my brain for that success. There were so many things that I did during that time. It was more than that. It was going back to old memories and reshaping them. In other words, not remembering the bad things, but reshaping them to better. What would you have liked to have happened then? Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I decided the first mountain I was going to go back and tackle was Kilimanjaro. And that was the next year, 2006. And I had anxiety about Kilimanjaro, but like I told you, for weeks before I went to Kilimanjaro, I wrote out 50 times, 50 times, 50 times, every single day for weeks before, until that was in my head so strong. And I got on the plane, and I'll never forget the movie that I saw on the plane. It convinced me 100% this was meant to be. I don't know if you ever heard of The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. I have not. Have you, Sharon? No. It's sure. about thoughts. It was all about exactly what I had done beforehand. And I saw this as a sign. You know, it's like I had so much serendipity happen to me during that time that it was hard to ignore that this movie was the movie that was playing because that only re-emphasized everything that I'd learned. And when I got to Kilimanjaro, you know, I mean, it's, it's massive. It was incredible. It was the most amazing experience. And the thing that really <laughs> amazed me was they all knew that I had my sights set on Everest. So when it was time to go to the summit, the leader, the guide said, Gene, I want you to lead the pack. And I did, and I was the first one on the summit. And I knew then that everything that I had, had done previous, changing the thoughts, putting those good thoughts in, changing the negative thoughts, the negative experiences to good experiences, reprogramming my brain, so to speak. I spent every minute doing that and it succeeded. That boosted me up so much that I started thinking of other challenges. And here's where the serendipity came in. I had no intention 
I mean, think about this. Who in their right mind would want to go back to Everest a third time? Not only want to go back, but think that you could summit two mountains and run marathons all over the world before you did that. I mean, the left side thinking of my brain, the left analytical side would never have accepted that. But this new me, this new brain, thought that's possible, which still shocks me to this day that I was able to accept that challenge because what happened is I got a letter, I got a, an email from this running group and they did a seven um, marathon club. They had, you know, where you ran seven, you know, seven continents and ran marathons. And I thought, wow, that sounds cool. And they talked about the Antarctica marathon. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, that'd be a good thing to do after Everest because I really didn't know what I wanted to do after Everest. I wanted to do something more. And I thought, well, that'd be something to look forward to the next year. And when I talked to the man, he said, you know, we've sent you multiple emails asking you to join the group to see what you wanted to do. And you've never responded. He said, quite frankly, he said, you ran your New York City Marathon, your Boston Marathons in very good time. We wanted you to join. And I thought, well, you know, I just had other things on my mind. And he said, what were you doing? And I said, I was climbing the seven summits. And he said, wait, what were you doing? So I listed off the mountains that I had climbed. And he said, I need to talk to you. I need you to come into Boston. And I said, what's this about? And he said, well, you're talking about the Antarctica Marathon. That's filled for this year. So you'd have to go next year. But I can make an exception this year if you think you'd want to do something before that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, let's talk. So that's, he's the one that said to me, if you do these marathons and you do them in a certain amount of time, in other words, good travel plans, you can beat the world record for the least amount of days to do the seven marathons on seven continents. And so that was the record that I decided I'd try and beat. At that moment, I decided I was going to do it. I came home and I sat down and I thought, my God, <laughs> but you know what? I, I really believed that something had happened to me with Kilimanjaro, that something had happened to my thinking. I wasn't thinking as negative as I was. I firmly believed I could do it. And I knew I had to reprogram my mind and get it set for that goal. So I went and I um, started clicking off all the marathons and all the continents that I'd have to go to. And, you know, of course, I was going to have to climb another mountain before I went to, um, which was Kosciuszko in Australia, before I went to uh, Everest to complete the seven summits. And I was going to be doing the Antarctica marathon right before Everest, which meant that I wouldn't be able to train. But the interesting thing is running all those marathons my brain just slowed down. The thinking slowed down. I was so exhilarated. I had all these moments of no thought. <laughs> a lot happened during those seven marathons. I mean, I remember coming home one time, my pipes, when I turned on the water, dirt was coming out. And I called the plumber and he said, uh, we're going to have to replace all the pipes in your house. And that would have been the end of it for me because I couldn't afford to keep going on with what I was doing. But I called on a lark, I got this feeling, and this is a true story, <laughs> that maybe if I called this electrician, <laughs> I had this overwhelming urge to call this electrician. I didn't give up on the hunches that I had. 
I just called him and I said, I don't know why I'm calling you, but I'm having trouble with my pipes. And he said he had the same problem and he knew exactly how to fix it. He told me I had to open up the valve and let all the water drain out to get rid of it. And it worked. I mean, things like that, where when I went to um, Summit Kosciuszko, I went in a blinding snowstorm. When we got there, the snow was coming down pretty bad. I didn't have a guide to go there. And I knew that if I was going to a mountain, I needed a guide, even if it wasn't the big ass mountains. This was about 7,000 feet high, but it, it wasn't like the 22,000 or anything like that. So I wrote to every guide agency before I left praying. And they said, well, it, it's not the perfect time for climbing because the guides are all busy with fishing trips and everything else. And we don't have anyone available. And lo and behold, I got to this resort and I went to check in and he said, yeah, Gene Stewicki, huh? Let me see. I've got a letter for you. And it was the guide. They had canceled his fishing trip at the last moment and he was going to meet me at the mountain the next day. And I can tell you right now, if he hadn't met me at the mountain, number one, I wouldn't have gotten the Guinness World Record because you had to have someone sign in. And I didn't know at that time that I was the oldest woman in the world to have done the seven summits. But actually, we got there, it had started snowing. And he said, if you want to do this, you're going to have to put on all everything you've got in your bag, you're going to have to gear up. And we're going to go. And he said, it's going to be ugly. But he said, if you're thinking about going to Everest, this is nothing. And I mean, at first, we were the only two on the mountain. I mean, we were the only two on the mountain. And by the time we finally reached the summit, the sun had come out. And we went down to, you know, afterwards, when we got back down, he said, girl, you are just unbelievable. He said, you just went through a blinding snowstorm to get to the top. He said, you know, come out and have a drink with me. So we went out and have a drink. And I had this feeling that I should ask him to give me his address in case I ever needed it. And at the time, believe me, I had no idea I was the oldest woman in the world to climb the seven summits. <laughs> it was like, what? <laughs> But he gave me his name and he gave me his address. And that was important because Guinness requires you to have someone, you know, an actual signature from someone that's been with you to the summit and knows you summited. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, all these things, this serendipity kept happening. And as they happened, I began to believe, wow, <laughs> this is absolutely amazing because Things that should have derailed me didn't. You know, so many, I could name so many other things that went wrong during that year that were corrected at the last minute. Like when I was in um, South America and I was running there and I couldn't understand the language and nobody could explain to me where the marathon headquarters were. And I actually had to hail down a cab and in sign language, trying, you know, running and, you know, talking about, and finally his face broke out in a smile and he put up his fist and he, I got in the cab and he drove me right to the marathon headquarters. It was an amazing year. I can say that. Wow. Gene, this is an amazing story. So what are you doing now? Well, I had an accident at work. See, when I came home, I can tell you that I came home to the life I'd left behind. And mm. suddenly, you know, I had... Well, at first, when I first came home, it was the feeling of coming home to an empty house and knowing that the adventures were over. But then the telephone started ringing. 
I got news interviews. Oprah Winfrey even called me. That had me screaming all over the whole house. <laughs> I had people come to my door to videotape me. One local television station came. They wanted to talk to the woman who had done all this. I was speaking at General Mills. I got, you know, I mean, I got all kinds of awards. It was like an amazing time. But coupled with that, I had come back to a divorce, <laughs> to the thought that I could lose my home because of the divorce, to a lot of problems that I left behind. Does that make sense? My life, you know, you think that no matter how seemingly impossible the accomplishments you have, it, it doesn't really change your life. I mean, there I was, a 57-year-old woman who'd beaten all odds, I'd achieved the unachievable, and still I had so much to learn. Yes, I'd found a faith and I'd taken charge of my life. And yes, I decided to live before it was too late. But I remember one of the Sherpers saying to me on the plane, on the way back to uh, Kathmandu, that mountain's not done with you yet. Hmm. Now, I don't think Jeremy has ever heard you describe about when you summited Everest. I'll never forget the first time I ever heard you talk about it. Would you mind sharing that story with us? No, that's, it's still, sorry. It's okay. Still, still brings tears to my eyes. That happened. Every time I talk about it, it's difficult because hard to believe I accomplished that. But anyway, I remember when I went up the Losey face, it was the point on the past two Everest attempts that I hadn't been able to get past. It's a 3,700 foot wall of ice. And I looked up and I saw these climbers that look like little black dots. And I realized that when you fall on the Lhotse face, it's all ice and we've got Gore-Tex on and it's boilerplate ice. So you can't plant your ax to arrest your fall. You just go hurtling down that great wall and there's a huge crevasse at the bottom of it where most climbers end up with their heads exploded. So I, I knew that there were a lot of climbers that came down like that, that died in that way. And that terrified me. And of course they're kicking steps into the ice and you're getting this constant barrage of ice on your head. And you're constantly trying to duck because you don't want to get hit with that ice and lose your footing. You're paying attention to every moment at a time when you're about 23,000 feet and you're, you're not on oxygen at that time. And a lot was going through my head. And especially on the third attempt, because we had to wait before we could do the ascent of the Losey face. <laughs> and this isn't funny, but for me, it was like, oh, my God. They had to bring down the body of a Sherpa who had died <laughs> in the exact fashion I talked about. And we all had to stand to the side while they brought his body past. And that was a moment for me when I knew I was having a test. You know, was I going to continue on? Was I going to take that chance? Because once you flip onto that rope, you know that you're taking responsibility for not only yourself, but for anyone who thinks they might have to rescue you. And I didn't want to put anyone else in danger because I made a mistake. Anyway, I um, got right up there and I had this overwhelming feeling that I would do it. And there was one point on the Losey face where I went to climb a ladder and I lost my grip. And in that moment, I flailed a little. And at 23,000 feet, when you do that, 
your breathing is impaired to start off with because any extra effort without oxygen, you're having a hard time with the breathing. They told us to take our time, go slow, no sudden movements. And I started to crow just like I did when I had the vocal cord dysfunction. And I remember thinking in my mind, I trusted in this spirituality and this, this feeling that God isn't separate from me. Where is he now? And in that moment of me flailing, feeling like I was drowning because I could not get the cords to open and I, they were coming with oxygen and I knew nothing was going to help me because I'm a nurse anesthetist unless I got those vocal cords unclamped. And suddenly I took a deep breath and it was at that moment, <laughs> I still get emotional when I talk about it. I knew I would go to the summit of Everest. And when I went to the summit of Everest, I had no fear because I knew I was going to do this. Even on the way down, <laughs> this is funny, on the way down, the Hillary step is all rock and ice, rock, I should say. The ice and all the snow has been blown off because of the hurricane force winds. And we've got crampons on, so we have to be very careful about the way we walk. And on the way down, they didn't want us holding up the line, so they told us to just clip in once. So we had one carabiner that was holding us and a rope tied to us that was holding us on that mountain. And it's at a time when your brain is not thinking 100% and you've got all these climbers that are jostling on that rope and it's moving in your hands and they're trying to go up past you. And the Sherpa that was with me that my group actually assigned a high altitude Sherpa to be with every individual climber because they knew if they didn't do that, they'd lose track of us because we all look the same with our face masks and, you know, the oxygen mass and the big hoods, you can't tell whose team is whose. So they had assigned a high altitude Sherpa to look out for each individual climber. He was ahead of me. And I remember I lost my balance and I slipped. And as I started to slip, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> and I went over the edge and I felt a tug and I had one carabiner holding me onto the mountain. And I knew that I had to get back up. And I remember looking below my feet and seeing the drop I would have had. I couldn't see the whole drop because the clouds were there, but there was this huge ledge. I mean, I would have dropped quite a few thousand feet. I would have died, but I heard people screaming, she's gone over the edge. And the Sherpa came back and his eyes were like huge. And he clamped himself into the mountain and he reached down and he grabbed my backpack and he pulled me up onto the mountain. And I stood there for a minute and I was like in total shock. I was just, Aah. and now I had to go down the rest of the way. And he decided he was gonna go behind me because <laughs> he wasn't gonna take a chance with this klutz. But anyway, going down was terrifying to me at that point. Right then, that was a little scary. That was something that really shook me up bad. But my thoughts, you know, you're kind of, you're not 100% because of the oxygen deprivation. So the fear that I would have normally felt was kind of muted by that. But he kept wanting to stop for a rest. And I said, no, 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 you just keep going. I just don't want to stop. I want to keep going and finally made it to camp four, which is called the death camp because certain parts digestion, certain things shut down, certain, certain body systems shut down because of the lack of oxygen. You're only allowed to stay there so long. And here's, 
here's this scene where all the Sherpas are banging their pots and pans and screaming, yay, because I was the first one down. And all I wanted to do was get to my tent and just lay down and just process what had just happened to me because I was shaking so bad. And the Sherpa, they were so... It was so wonderful to me. They were so great. You know, they came in, you know, he came in and he sat and he talked with me. He said, are you all right? And my voice, I couldn't even talk. I was like just in total shock from what had happened. But I knew I was going to be okay. I knew I was going to make it down the rest of the way. Wow. Gene, I tell you, I've, I've got a whole page of notes and stuff I've written down here. And, uh, you know, I've just, I'll tell you what, your story, hopefully it hits everyone else like it's hitting me right now because it's amazing. And... I know we could probably go on for the next hour or two and just hearing about this. Maybe we'll do another podcast, but I think at this point we probably should try to wrap it up. Anything you want to conclude on for our listeners? Yes. Consciousness. What we think about every day determines our success or failure. And for me, it took examining the thoughts that I had on a daily basis that were pushing me in the wrong direction. To succeed like I succeeded, I had to constantly, constantly think the different thoughts so that as just like a habit, when you have this habit, you're smoking and you've developed these neuronal pathways, you have to break that up. You have to get rid of that in order to be able to stop that kind of habit or bringing on a new habit like running like I did, running every day and just building those pathways. It's the same with what we think, and people don't realize that, especially in this moment of great distress in our country. You've seen instances where people have adopted a certain mindset, and they're not going to give that up no matter what, even if they die from it. It's important to start paying attention to what you're thinking and to wonder where those thoughts are coming from and to start changing them to better thoughts, because that's what makes the difference in your life. And it's something that I still work on now, especially since the accident I had at work that disabled me so badly, they thought that I wouldn't be able to live alone. But I've been exercising every day and I've gotten back to the books that have helped me. And I can honestly say that now I'm on the treadmill. I may not be able to run, but I got it at a steep incline and I'm walking like crazy every single day, two miles. Wow. Well, Jean, I've so glad you finally joined us. We had the pleasure of meeting right after you kind of caught uh, the public eye. I mean, as an association with the AANA, we didn't know about you. And then all of a sudden, we hear on national news that a CRNA has broken all of these records. And I'll never forget when I met you and we were coming in for joint committee conference and they had gotten in touch with you, the AANA, and you were going to be speaking there and telling your story. And my plane was delayed. And whenever I got in, everybody had gone to dinner with you and I had gotten in late and everybody stopped me and said, wait until you meet Jean. And you told me later, everybody kept telling you, wait until you meet Sharon. Y'all are going to, y'all are going to love each other. And, you know, I've loved you since that moment. And I have heard your story so very many times. And every, when I was given those speeches, I wasn't prepared to talk. I realized I needed time to process. Sure. And I mean, I wrote a book and the book has to be changed somewhat. It's a good book, but it has to talk about what I just talked to you about. I've come to realize 
what made the difference in my, in my you know, I, I need to bring that message to other people. That's what I need to be talking about. Sure. And we've had these discussions before you and I, because when you first wrote the book, you had sent me the first chapter of it. And I told you then, there's something else here that you're not telling. And you weren't even ready. No, uh, I wasn't. I wasn't ready. Do you know how many versions of the book there's been? Four. No, four. Well, you know, I've listened to you several times and I could continue listening to your story because it's so absolutely inspirational to so many. And, you know, we'll have to follow up with another podcast because one piece we didn't get an opportunity to touch on, which I think is important for CRNAs to hear, is how you believe that being a CRNA also helped shape your thought processes that would lead you to success, the same things that you had learned. And I've heard you talk about this on multiple occasions. And so, Jeremy, we're going to have to get her back to talk about some of those things, too, if she'll come back. (laughs) Of course I will. I want to thank you both for having me on this podcast. Jean, we want to thank you. I mean, this has, again, been amazing. And uh, this will be one that, that stays with me for a very long time. So you've hit on some some points and things that I think are very important. And, you know, I think almost everyone could get something out of what you said today. So thank you. Thank you. Well, Sharon, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I think so. We'll have her back, though. Absolutely. We want to thank our thank listeners. Thank you both so much. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. And the single best way to help our show grow is to tell others. Because you know, Sharon, now we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country. Woohoo! Yes, go. and we want to be in the top 10. So we're asking you know for what? everybody's help. Knowing you two, especially <laughs> Sharon, I don't know you that well, Jeremy. I never met you, but I think you've probably got the same instincts that Sharon does. Sharon doesn't fail. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I don't know about I don't fail, but I just don't give you up. You get back up. Yeah, that's right. I think we all See, fail. See, that's, that's how you don't fail, by not giving up. That's right. right? That's exactly right. Keep uh, on trying until you make it. That's right. Absolutely. Make it you and make now it. we're even more inspired after talking with Eugene. That's right. Oh, that's so. sweet of you to say. Well, thank you. And for all our listeners, until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. 
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.